Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Part two of your Ben Jarofsky show for Tuesday, June 30th is brought to you in part by the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local 126 and District 8, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9, the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150, and our good friends at the Chicago Federation of Labor. Benny J, take it away. Been talking about this show all day with me. Uh, PC, Peter Cunningham, a frequent visitor at our show. Peter, welcome to the show. Welcome back, Cotter. Nice to be here, man. Always. And uh, Peter's been coming on the show, I forget, for however since I've had a show as a podcast. And I always say he's my dear friend, the moderate, the centrist, although he's been moving more and more left with each passing day. Pretty soon he'll go beyond me. He'll be even more lefty than me, if such a thing is possible. Uh, Peter used to work for Mayor Daly. That's when I first met him back in the 90s. Uh, he worked for Arnie Duncan at the Board of Education. He worked for Arnie Duncan in the Obama administration. And since uh, coming home to Chicago, uh, he's really been thinking a lot and talking a lot and writing a lot about policing. And that's what I want to talk to. We'll get into some political stuff at the end, Peter. But uh, policing is on my mind. There's some horrendous stories of violence in the city of Chicago uh, over the weekend and fear that we'll see uh, more shootings uh, as we head into the 4th of July. Uh, three little kids killed uh, in the crossfire. And um, it's just, it just really wears at you. It's just, it doesn't seem as though Chicago seems to understand uh, how to deal with this violence. Your general thoughts before no. we get into specifics. No, it's really uh, got everybody, I think, just kind of... Uh, defeated and speechless in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, you see it in the mayor who's struggling to find words. You see it in the new police chief who was really struggling, I think, to get a handle on, you know, how to, how to manage this. Um, uh, you know, he's bringing, I think, you know, standard tactics to a situation that has defied uh, standard responses for a long, long time, whether it was the surge we talked about a few weeks ago or this plan he has for this weekend to kind of round up a lot of kids and keep them in jail just to keep them safe. And, it, you know, it just doesn't really, uh, I mean, he's going to take a lot of heat over that um, because yeah, I think it's a constitutional violation, among other things. But, uh, you know, I'm not sure his heart is in the wrong place, but it's just not, not a viable strategy. And so, uh, I, you know, the, the guys I'm working with, I work with Chicago Cred, and we partner with, you know, Partner Alliance's ready program and community partnering for peace, all these groups that are out there on the streets with outreach workers, you know, directly confronting kids with guns and gangs and asking them to put down their guns. And uh, uh, they, they, they work in these hotspots uh, where, you know, there's been intense, intense violence. They go in there unarmed and ask these kids to stop shooting. I mean, you know, they're dealing with the, the most at risk and so they're 
their heroes. And one of the one of the kids in our program, his name is Tom Caston, and his son was the uh, kid who was killed in England last weekend, uh, one year old, twenty month old, sincere Caston. In fact, we're doing a, a vigil tomorrow for sincere down at um sixty first and Halstead at one o'clock in the afternoon to you know to memorialize this child who who was caught in the crossfire. I mean, it's just absolutely shocking. There was another vigil last night in my neighborhood of Logan Square where a 10-year-old girl was shot through her apartment window. Mm-hmm. And, and just random gunshots that are taking the lives of young people. It's, it's, you know, it just sounds trite to keep on saying this is unacceptable. You know, we have to somehow take these kids who are at risk and just steer them into a new life. I don't know what it would, what it would take, you know. Get a big farm somewhere and have them, you know, go work on the farm for a couple of years until they just get this thing out of it. It's really, really troubling. All right, well, let's talk about uh, three issues related to this. Get your thoughts on all three of them that I've written. Uh, one has to be uh, the defund the police movement. Uh, which has been mm-hmm. uh, getting a lot of attention in the city of Chicago lately. The other is uh, taking mm-hmm. police out of the schools, which is a cousin of that. Uh, and then mm-hmm. the, th- the third one is on the front page of the Sun-Times, which seems contradictory uh, to the first two, and that is an article about uh, Chicago Police Super- Superintendent David Brown uh, announcing yesterday at a press conference that he'll deploy uh, 1,200 extra officers in an effort to rein in holiday weekend violence. So it seems as like a, a contradictory message is being sent out here. On one hand, we have a movement to defund the police, uh, that law yep. and order is not the answer. And then on the eve of the 4th of July holiday, in the aftermath of all the shootings that have gone down over the last two weekends, the police chief is assuring Chicagoans that he'll deploy even more police to the streets. Obviously, contradiction. Yeah. Uh, Pete, address that issue. Yeah, I think it's um, illustrative of how hard it is to, you know, to to manage this situation. People are literally diametrically aligned. So first on the defund the police um, discussion, I think it's um, uh, not a useful phrase to get locked into because uh, I would guess that the percentage of people who really want to do away with police entirely is very low. Um, And, uh, but, there's lots and lots of people, and I'm among them, who want to see them really, really reimagine their job and rethink their job and re, re, you know, almost start from scratch. And, and you know, because I believe that changing the police culture is just too hard. You know, we've had a consent decree for a number of years. I, when I worked for Daily in the '90s, we were starting community policing back then. That's you know, 25 years ago. We're still here, sort of talking about community policing. So um, I'm all for radically transforming the profession of policing. Uh, I am absolutely for thinking about whether to shrink the department and shrink the number of things that police do. Today we have 13,000 cops in Chicago for 2.7 million people. LA has 9,000 cops for 4 million people. On a per capita basis, we have twice as many cops as LA, and they have one-third of the gun violence that we have. Um, so more policing is not the answer. And we could easily shrink the department and divert a lot of money into social services, into violence prevention, like the organization I work with, CRED, and into community investment that you know people need. And I think that would be a great strategy. 
we still have a very robust police department. And uh, we could also start asking police to do a lot of things that they're really not trained to do. They're not really trained to handle mental health. Uh, they're not trained really to handle homeless people. What's a police officer going to do to a homeless guy? They pick him up and tell him to get moving or he's going to get arrested. He's not going to lead him to treatment. He's not going to find a roof put over his head. So, you know, we have so much of police. And, it, it, you know, statistics show police, only 5% of police time is spent on violent crime. And only 5% of the arrests are for violent crime. And only 5% of the people in prison are for violent crime. Maybe slightly higher. So why not just really, really radically transform, A, the role of police, B, the role of prisons, and, and you know, save a lot of money and put a lot more money into solving problems instead of just arresting people. That would be my first reaction to defund the police. Mm-hmm. I don't think defunding and getting rid of them completely is the answer. You still want to be able to call 911 if somebody's trying to break into your house and somebody's threatening you. Or God forbid if somebody does even worse, you want to be able to call a police officer. I think so. Mm-hmm. So as for the police and schools, I actually think they landed in a decent place. The board voted against getting rid of them, which I'm sure was at the direction of the mayor who was explicit about wanting to keep them in the schools. Uh, but the, ultimately, they decided the LSC should request it. And I think that's a pretty good place to, to be because, you know, there are some people who are afraid to, to not have the finished But I do know one person who spoke out on this issue who I had great respect for, and that's Ms. Dozier. She's the principal of um, Sanger High School. Mm-hmm. She's taken over in a week after she took over during Albert building that horrific, horrific incident where somebody hit him in the head with a a piece of wood and was caught on tape and it led to a big, big, big soul-searching moment in Chicago and the country. Um, I remember I, we had just uh, gone out to Washington with the Obama administration and um, oh, the White House asked Arnie and Holder, Eric Holder, Arnie Duncan, State Secretary, Eric Holder, you know, um, uh, Attorney General to go to Washington, go to D.C. and and uh, uh, to go to Chicago and kind of deal with the situation. Yeah, I'll tell you a story that I haven't really told anyone. But I uh, I ended up in an elevator with his honor himself, Mayor Daly. And he was working for me. And we were going to meet him in some hotel lobby or some hotel conference room where we are going to all talk about this. The media was going to be there. <laughs> the mayor just looked at me in the elevator and said, what the hell are you guys going to so he's like, you know, and I say, well, I know, Mayor, maybe they'll provide some grants, you know, and he's like, okay, whatever. But I think he just felt like it was such a media spectacle, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, well, uh, so, so, I, I, so, so that's my view about the schools, which is that I'm personally for like de- decriminalizing in schools as much as possible. And I can tell you that. When Arnie was CEO, he did a study, and we found out that we were absolutely the school system was the biggest provider of kids into the criminal justice pipeline. We were arresting kids all the time. We didn't, you know, it was all done at the local school level, so it's not like something the central office knew about until we finally studied the issue. Mm -hmm. So I'm for, like, getting as many schools to stop using police as possible, but if some schools are are afraid, you know, maybe they need to have that right to do that. That's where, that's kind of where they landed. Well, I'll just add my two cents on this issue uh, before we get back to the culture of the police department that you alluded to. And that is this. Uh, 
I think it was a little disingenuous of the board and the mayor uh, to say local school councils have an option and they've decided to uh, keep the, the police in their uh, schools when the local school councils in Chicago really haven't been given a legitimate option. So in other words, they're basically told, look, if you want the police, take the police. If you don't want the police, uh, we'll take them out of your school. But we're not going to give you money that is saved by not having police in your school. That money is going to go to the Board of Education. Right. And so I was like, well, what choice is there? It's not like you're telling a local So you're right. That, 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 that's a fair point. I wasn't, I wasn't really aware of that. I wasn't tracking. It's a good point. Yeah, so like a local school council doesn't have the option to say, well, we'll tr- trade that police for a Spanish teacher or, you know, a, uh, a gym teacher, et cetera, and so forth. So I think... Or uh, a counselor, somebody who can counselor. deal with, yeah. you know, discipline issues in a different way. Yes, or it's a counselor. A more, that's a more obvious trade-off. So I think you're right. They ought to be giving them a menu and saying, would you like us to work with the Chicago Police Department? Would you rather spend it on restorative justice programs? Mm-hmm. Would you rather spend it on social service workers and counselors? Or do you feel that you just don't need this at all? In which case, you can send it on a parish teacher. Yeah, and so and and so, I would hope that they change that and and have the money for the police come out of the police department as opposed to having it come out of the school uh, funds. When you spend money for police that comes out of the board of education's funds, that's less money that you have for you pick it, Peter counselor, social worker, therapist, librarian, Spanish teacher, et cetera, and so forth. So uh, I'm I'm encouraged that they're having the conversation and that the the four to three vote woke people up, and I hope they take it to the next level. Uh, Here's here's one of the challenges with the way they did it also. Let's say you're a school and you decide, you know what, we really want to go it without police. We really want to see if we can, you know, focus on, uh, you know, focus on, restorative justice and counseling. Now you have an incident, serious incident. You have somebody or something, something terrible. And people say, you should have kept the cops. Now you and I both know just because the cops are somewhere nearby or in the building, it doesn't mean that incident wouldn't happen. But that will now put pressure back on somebody. You know, it's an unfortunate side effect of the way public policy is often conducted, which is, you know, some incident somewhere prompts you to pass the whole law instead of, you know, dealing with just that one incident. So well, I think it's, I, I think in some ways it puts schools on the spot to take that risk mm-hmm. and it's a little unfair. Absolutely. And it gets to the point uh, when I was listening to you talk about the pressures uh, that mayors face when they confront this issue. Uh, the reality is that part of the reason that the culture of the police department, not just in Chicago, but across the country is what it is, is that politicians are so reluctant uh, to confront police, are reluctant because, and you and I have talked about this for years, they don't want to be labeled as soft on law and order. And that, that goes to your point. If a school substitutes a, a counselor or a therapist for a police officer and then, God forbid, there's a shooting, you could just hear the, right. the response. You see what I'm saying, Peter? The parents are going nuts. They're going nuts. They bring in the cops. Yeah, yeah, it's um, it's unfortunate. I mean, and that is the culture in Chicago, and it's the culture all over the country. The Washington Post just did a big piece about the Baltimore Police Department. But after the Freddie Gray incident, remember the guy who was killed in the back of the police van? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so they went through a whole reform process, and every single one of their, I mean, whatever, the, you know, the vast majority of the reforms never got implemented. They just blocked them, they stopped them, 
you know, the unions resisted them, the rank and file resisted them, the supervisors resisted them. It just didn't happen. And, you know, we had the same situation here. We had two reports from the special monitor or whatever, Maggie Hickey, and uh, I think what her title is, um, uh, she's overseeing the consent decree. Mm-hmm. And we missed, you know, 60, 70% of the deadline both times. So, you know, who, who's serious about this? Who's serious about this? I'm not seeing it. I haven't heard David Brown talk about it much in his time here. He's so concerned with trying to quell the violence that, uh, you know, that he's, you know, trying to, driving people, you know, putting guys on 12 hour shifts. He's canceling vacations. Now he's got 1,200 extra guys working this weekend. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't think that's the right strategy. <laughs> you know, I think the right strategy is to start to retrain these guys to become, you know, community, uh, partners and to, Stop thinking that they can go round up teenagers. You think about it, right? Five kids are playing basketball the other night on the basketball court, making noise, right? Mm-hmm. The neighbors call the cops. What can happen, right? All they needed, all those kids needed, some respected community elder, an outreach worker, to come by and say, "Hey, kid, let's call it the night, right?" But it's the other cops, he has your ID. Next thing you know, people are shifting around a little bit. Somebody runs because they got whatever, they got a problem, and now you got to, you know. We put them in too many situations, and, and it's not good. They have to really, really try and try much harder to change things. Yeah, we have to rethink things. Uh, we'll get back to the culture. There was a, I, you know, I didn't talk talk to you about this in our pre-show conversation, but so I'll just drop it on you now. There was a, um, a it was an upsetting article in the New York Times that I read over the weekend or last week about uh, the youngest police officer who is charged in the George Floyd murder. Uh, his name is... I read it. I read it. Kang. Yeah, he's a 26-year-old yeah. bi- biracial yeah. kid. Come, his best friend is a Black Lives Matter pro uh, activist. And yeah. it seemed like a training day in reverse. I don't know if you ever saw the, the Denzel Yes, Washington. it was actually that. I mean, Derek Chauvin was his training officer. Yes. Was, now, who assigned Derek Chauvin to train this guy? Derek Chauvin had 20 citizen complaints against him. Yeah. Who assigned him? Say, hey, Derek, show me the ropes. Oh, here's how you do it, man. <laughs> I mean, it, it's just nuts. I mean, Derek Chauvin shouldn't have been on the streets, let alone training other officers. Yeah. That was a devastating story. It was a devastating was story. His third yeah. shift. It was his third shift. Yeah. His whole career. He's now facing, what, uh, I don't know if he's facing murder or uh, aiding and abetting mm-hmm. murder. Yeah. And it's. I, I I am really, really dubious that we can change a culture of the police department. And, you know, I, I wonder whether they need to start over with a parallel agency and just start to shift from one agency, you know, start shifting police screen, screen for people who have the wrong tendencies, you know, and just start weeding them out really aggressively, shrink the department, and, you know, and create a new culture that, that says, you know, you know, if you're getting out of the car with your hand on your gun, you're probably getting a little jumpy. Yeah. Get back in the car. You know, think about it. Uh, you know, I covered police in Long Island like 30 years ago, and I remember there was a guy who had that that whole problem, and the police chief told me that they just had to put him at his desk because he just, you know, he was just too quick to put his hand on his gun. Like, what are you doing? I just wrote a piece about a young, uh, not a young, a, a detective named Vivian Williams who's in the front time. Spent her whole career working in Roseland, helped negotiate a peace truce. She worked with young ladies uh, in the local school who were, you know, all facing that, you know, 
problematic pathway of, you know, teenage pregnancy, dropping out of school and, you know, watching their life dreams disappear. And she's a terrific woman. She said she's hardly ever pulled a gun a few times. She said, and the only, you know, time she ever shot it was when a dog was attacking her. She said that she went home and cried after this. But, you know, she's a terrific role model, 25 years in the department, you know, really sees her role as, you know, not, uh, not making arrests, but changing lives. And how do you get, you know, 13,000 cops to all start to behave that way? I don't know. Well, you know. one thing you could start with, going back to the training, and you're absolutely correct, uh, of all the people in the world to train this young officer in Minnesota, uh, Derek Chauvin, who had all these uh, uh, complaints against him. And in, in, in the article, it talked about how there, he'd been chastised, the young officer had been chastised. It didn't say if it was Chauvin who chastised him, but it was one of his training officers. Chastised him for doing something wrong and my guess is he wasn't tough enough. That was sort of what the article was suggesting. And so then his third day on the assignment, he is the one who went out and confronted uh, George Floyd originally. And somehow, right. somehow or other, Peter, it's not in their training just to let a guy like George Floyd go. Let's just think about that for a minute. You know, it's like the, yeah. the guy's been accused, what, of passing a counterfeit $20 bill. Let's say he did it. Let's just say he did it, okay? What? Yep. <laughs> Why can't you just let him go? Yep. Uh, yeah, I mean, because they've been told, you know, you put the cuffs on them and you leave it to the system to decide. I, I don't think that they, again, I, I, I don't know this, but I don't want to speak out of, out of place. You know, I don't know how police are trained. Uh, my sense is that for the most part, once they put cuffs on a guy, the train is left the station. And, you know, and um, A, they could have just let him go. But B, he was in the car. <laughs> he was already in a car at one point, then he got back out. I, I don't understand quite what happened. But, uh, you know, yeah, why not let him go? Because what good is going to come from it? You're going to spend a ton of money to prosecute him, a ton of money to incarcerate him. A guy who passed a twenty dollars, you know, kind of a twenty dollars. Do we do we think he's a counterfeiter, or do we think he accidentally got this money? Does anyone even know? I don't even know. I mean, I can't believe George Floyd is a counterfeiter. So it, it's crazy. Yeah, it's just crazy. I uh, and I don't know if uh, in police training courses they deal with the issue of letting people go. I do know that in my own life, in the few exchanges I've had with police officers, they've always let me go. Now, you know, it's been things like uh, minor things. Well, I would say passing a twenty counter for $20 bill is a minor thing. Uh, but uh, it's it just seems to me common sense is you don't need to do this arrest. Just let him go. Uh, but it seemed that seems contrary to the attitude that this king, this young officer, was instructed uh, by Derek. Schoen. Right, and I gotta believe that they're not trained to make those judgments. They're, they're not trained to. You decide whether to follow through on the arrest. I think they're trained to say if if there's a crime, you make the arrest. I I don't know. Again, I'm not, I'm not really familiar with the training procedures. I did read a little bit about it uh, this week. There's an article in Hacker. They spend a lot more time. Like, you know, 
60 hours on firearms training and use the force technique, six, another 60 hours, but only like eight hours to be at position. So, you know, they're not always taught to de-escalate. They're more taught to, you know, here's, here's the circumstance when you use your gun. And I, I think that's because, you know, it, you know, in their defense, there's just an awful lot of guns out there. You know, the chance of encountering somebody with a gun, I don't know what it is. Is it every day? If you encounter 10 guys a day during a shift, what's the chance one of the 10 has a gun? I don't know. Probably pretty high, don't you think? Can you see? Um, there's, uh, while I have you on the phone, I hadn't planned to ask you this, but it's on the front page of my Sun Times, and so I just have to share this with you just for a moment before we move on. Uh, you and I share, you were the, actually the first person to put this in my head, uh, and I've been saying it ever since. Eddie Johnson got a bum deal. I, I, you said that on the show about six months ago, I want to say, and I'm with you 100%. Mm-hmm. Uh, he just got a bum deal. So when I look at just in terms of the cynicism that exists out there by police officers, yeah. uh, part of it is the way it just, it's just sort of the spectacle of the way police chiefs are used in this town. They're like p- political animals. Gary McCarthy was Rom's best friend, and as soon as he was disposed, it was an embarrassment to have him around. Boom, fired. Blamed everything, blamed on him. And uh, Lori Lightfoot did pretty much the same thing with Eddie Johnson. Uh, and the, the story in the Sun-Times, I don't know if you saw this, body cam footage shows uh, ex-police yeah. chief superintendent asleep at the wheel. By the way, they handled that one. I don't know if you read the article. Did you read the article, Peter? I didn't. I, I saw the headline. I just didn't get a chance to read it yet. But. It, they handled it the way I think the cops in Minneapolis should have handled uh, George Floyd. They let him go. <laughs> they, <laughs> they saw the police chiefs. There you go. You know, they, so they knew enough to let Eddie Johnson go. But, yeah, they let him go. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, this guy really attracts the society. So you just need to go home. Let's just take him home. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly that's, that's the way they view it, and uh, yeah, I don't really disagree with that. But um, all right, now let's yeah, it's a lousy ending to a guy who, for whatever reason, you know, didn't seem like a bad guy. Certainly wasn't an agent of change, but in some ways, you know, after after um, the Quan McDonald was he was he a kind of a, a settle things down guy? Maybe I mean under his watch, 2016 was the worst year under his watch. Gun violence declined three years in a row. I mean, if you got you got you got to blame the police chief when it goes up, and you got to give him credit when it goes down. And it went down three years in a row under Eddie Johnson. You know, you know, he did bring in you know strategic decision support centers. He did sort of introduce data driven policing. Uh, he did, you know, he was fairly um, he was pretty welcoming to the violence prevention crowd. You know, I wouldn't say he was really enthusiastic about it. Or, you know, like, you know, I'm, I'm not sure he really was a believer in it, but. He certainly wasn't against it. He, 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 uh, he was open to it. Um, you know, uh, I think the jury's still out on the ground about that issue. You know, like, does he really understand how outreach can help him? Does he really understand how, you know, reimagining police and shifting them away from some things they're not good at would be a good thing for cops and for people? Does he really understand the limits of, you know, m- more manpower, more overtime, more live bodies? Or does he still sort of think that, you know, go, you know, plow through the neighborhoods with the horns blaring, with those sirens blaring, and round up the bad guys, you know? Because 
extra skills, you know, resentment, and, you know, and creates mistrust. It's not a good, not a good thing to do. Peter, when you think about where we are uh, today, I was, I'd like to get your sense of post uh, George Floyd and um, the movements that we've seen, what has changed with a society's attitude toward police, but also what has remained the same. So when you think about that, address that issue. What has changed post George Floyd, but what remains the same? Hmm. I'm going to take what I think hasn't changed. I think, you know, there's still uh, a big, big, big constituency out there for law and order. I think that, um, you know, much as I'm interested in really bold change and much, much as I'm absolutely interested in radically shrinking the prison industrial complex and the, the prison pipeline and, and the, you know, the stop and frisk and all that kind of, you know, uh, hard, hard-ass kind of tactics, uh, I think it would be dangerous to go too far and assume that most people still want to be able to pick up the phone, call 911, and have a cop show up in three minutes if they're fearful. So I don't think that changed. Has, um, I, I think the, uh, the, the police unions haven't changed. I think they're going to become more militant and more combative. It's interesting to, to note they only started in 1981 here in Chicago. I assume they, they went further back. But uh, there was no police union under Richard J. Daly, 1981, under Jane Byrne. And uh, I think the question is whether the George Floyd protest has created sort of a new, a, you know, a new dynamic that, that is uh, different than, you know, all the other ones. We have to Ferguson. It wasn't really changed. That's a little We had a consent decree, but I wouldn't say we've seen a lot of change as a result of it. So why is George Floyd somehow capturing it? Obviously, the video is beyond horrific. Uh, it, 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 we're literally watching a guy being executed. And, uh, uh, I mean, it was horrific to look longer, shorter, darker. It wasn't as, as just uh, kind of numbing uh, the way the George Floyd one was. What I what I what I hope is that um, the sort of key fund police or the Black Lives Matter movement come together around a very very clear agenda um, and begin to uh, to systematically push that agenda through their local government. So what would that agenda be? Can we get rid of, um, what's the phrase, immunity? The, uh, I'm, I'm blocking the phrase. The, uh, you know, the immunity for police officers is built in the contract. Can we get, can we begin to rethink all these, these contracts so that they're not so set up to protect, you know, uh, abusers? Can we rethink the police disciplinary systems? I mean, who's accountable for getting rid of a troubled police officer? Is it, the superintendent? Is it the mayor? Is it the police board? Is it COPA? Is it GAPA? Is it internal affairs? I mean, who's responsible for getting rid of a police officer who's a menace? And, you know, I'm not saying that they're everywhere, but there's usually one or two around at any time. And we've had them over the years. I can't answer that question. So, I don't know what changed, to be honest. I'm hoping that the movement to, to 
reform police starts to gel. Well, I remember a conversation we had that I always remind you of way back when, when you were saying for all his power, Mayor Daley was very cautious about confronting the police department on these issues yep. about how police behave in the streets, how police are punished, and uh, how much civilian control exists over the police mm -hmm. department. He pretty much allowed the police to be an independent entity. Do you think that attitude has changed uh, where our political leaders are reluctant to confront the police department? I don't think so. And I don't think there's a mayor in, in America, even the mayor of Minneapolis, who looks like a 12-year-old kid, <laughs> and I'm assuming is you know, pretty progressive, uh, is against the city council's move to defund police. And the city council guys, you know, in a way they can go ahead and do it because they're not going to be accountable at the end of the day when, when uh, you know, things don't happen. But, you know, we see blue flu happening up there. Uh, there's a lot of people who think it's happening in Chicago. It's always hard to prove. But, you know, um, and, you know, police officers are afraid to do their job because they're afraid to step out of line or do it wrong or get nailed for doing it wrong. They know that they can... Uh, sort of a, uh, you know, dynamic right now. People wanting to hold them accountable, which I agree with, but they're afraid to do their job. So can they get through their whole shift while basically, you know, standing apart from these, 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 these issues? So uh, I don't, I, I really don't feel like there is a single political leader in the country. And I, I, I haven't looked super closely. It's really, really it's taken on the wrong order, but really uh, brought his, his or her police department to the table and said, we're going to change. And if you don't change, you're going to go. You really don't have a choice. We're going to change. And we're going to change this culture. And, we, you know, we just, you know, we throw out a word like training and say, yeah, training, 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 you're up here, de-escalation. But, you know, to the average guy who's working, you give him six or eight hours of training, about how to de-escalate. Is that really going to change the way he operates every day? Is it going to change his attitude about the people he's policing? Is he going to change his view? If he has, you know, bias in him, is that going to go away after a couple of hours of training? It's not. So, I, I, you know, I don't think, I, I don't think a current mayor uh, is, is prepared to do it yet. I'm not saying she couldn't. I don't think she has yet. I don't think you know, that her, her predecessor or the other, or the, or try to predecessor did it. Mayor Daly or Mayor Emanuel, you know, it's just, it's too risky, if, you know, because cops will stop working or they'll unite against you or they'll start a media war. They're really good at it. <laughs> you know, like another union we know, they're very good at, you know, uh, expressing the grievances, some of which are legitimate, but many of which are exaggerated. And after a while, it's just really, really hard to take it on. At the time when you have so many other, so many other challenges as a mayor. But I can't think of any mayor in America who's really took it on. De Blasio hasn't. Giuliani certainly didn't. He didn't want it. Bloomberg didn't. You know, he was, you know, not aligned to do that. Mayor of uh, Los Angeles didn't do it. Uh, you know, hey, let's service to reform. LA did do some reforms. I'm pretty friendly with Vera Gosman, previous mayor of Los Angeles. And they oversaw some reforms, but they were under enormous pressure. Rodney King was in 1991, riots were in 92, 
it wasn't until Bill Bratton came in in 2001 that they asked that that police department finally started to move towards reform. And Charlie Beckett, the guy who was here for a while, he's the one who kind of took it forward. Um, uh, we're, so we're, we're way behind. Our video is 2015, 14. It happened in 14. It was released in 15. Our Rodney King moment for Kwame Donald in November of 2015. It's five years ago, and I would say that we're, we're maybe on the 10-yard line when it comes to reforming the police. Uh, all right, well, let's uh, move away from that depressing news uh, and talk about something uh, that may be a little more uplifting. Uh, the President of the United States, uh, Donald John Trump, is running as a law and order uh, president. Uh, he's dusted off some of the rhetoric of George Wallace and Richard Nixon, uh, names that, Peter, you're old enough to remember. Some of my listeners won't uh, right. may not know what I'm talking about. but I think... Law and Order. Ivan and, the Terrible, maybe, also? Maybe? What? I'm not sure. And Ivan the Terrible? Ivan the Terrible, yeah. And I'll say this. It doesn't seem to be helping him in the polls. So if I'm going to be try to be optimistic, uh, it seems as though blanket appeals to, like, tribal hatred and a need to have... Uh, the law enforcement come down hard on the people that you don't like, which is fundamentally what Trump, Wallace, and Nixon were all advocating, doesn't seem to be working, at least according to public opinion polls, in the year 2020. Your thoughts on this? Uh, I agree. I am not sure if his reversion to the law and order politics is what's hurting him or whether it's more is just relentless um, uh, deceit and um, evasion of responsibility. I think that's what's really coming home to roost with him. And, you know, there's a lot of people spending a lot of money right now to expose Trump's leadership failures, um, particularly people on the right. Things like the Lincoln Project and Republicans for the Rule of Law uh, are spending a lot of money to show uh, Trump's failures. They absolutely decided that in order to rebuild the Republican Party, they need to bury this guy. And I think they're right. Um, I sure hope they're right. Um, so he's, he's, he's definitely not doing well in the polls. I'm just not sure if it's because he's embraced the law and order. I think it's because he's just so exhausting and so relentlessly self-aggrandizing. And, uh, you know, this is a moment of, of true national crisis. And frankly, all he needs to do every day is stand up and say the right thing and he just can't do it. You know, and, and empower people around him to make good decisions, whether it's, you know, to announce that people should wear a mask or whether it's to fund vaccine research or whether it's to buy a bunch of personal protective equipment for the healthcare workers. They, they, they can all just do it. <laughs> but somehow he gets up every day and turns everything into a political drama into a series of lies. And I think people are just increasingly sick of it. Well, by the way, you mentioned the Lincoln Project. It's one of my favorite topics. I obsessively follow the Lincoln Project's uh, commercials. <laughs> they are, they're a group of Republicans, as uh, Peter was saying, that declared uh, their opposition to Donald Trump back in 2016 and have been picking up the pace on that front ever since. And to this point, 
one of the commercials that I found so effective, I don't know how it works with Republicans, it seems more directed at somebody like me, uh, shows Trump overplaying his hand uh, in having the military clear out uh, the area across the street from the White House so that he could go have a uh, a photo op outside the church. And uh, I I just had a sort of smile because many of these uh, Republican operatives that are in the Lincoln Project were using fear of crime and using uh, the law and order tactics to undercut the Michael Dukakis's of the world, to try to beat Bill Clinton, to undercut Al Gore, to work against Barack Obama. And now all of a sudden they've gotten religion and they're, they're denouncing it in their commercials. I suppose uh, better late than uh, never, but uh, even I have. Oh, no, no, no. Don't, get, don't, don't, don't get too hopeful. I mean, these guys are still our opponents. They just, they just know, they just know that Trump is an albatross, that you know, an anchor around the neck of the Republican Party, and they, they, they want to play it. I, I mean, they'll use law and order again to get elected. Trust me, <laughs> they just don't want to elect Trump. You are Sorry. so I correct. <laughs> I'm glad, they, I'm glad they do what they're doing, but I don't. <laughs> you are so correct. You know what I'm saying? You are so right. Before it's all said and done, they will be using law and order to try to undercut any attempt to He's have... Trying to undercut, yeah. uh, you know, Vice President Kamala Harris or whoever running in 2024. You can be sure they'll, they'll be using law and order against whoever that candidate is. All right. Well, I unless was... Joe is running... Unless Joe runs for the election in 2024. But we got to get elected first right here and now. Was, and, uh, yeah. It's, 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 it's hilarious to watch this race because the less he does... Frankly, the better <laughs> the more he rises in the polls. I mean, there's no issue or message that Joe delivered that got him the nomination. There's no issue or issue or message now that is helping him in the polls. Other than kind of these broad, you know, I'm a middle class Joe. You know, it's all because Trump is just so uh, so self-destructive, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. crazy that people are just looking at Biden and say. They do want to return to normalcy. He doesn't like to use that trade. I think that's what's going on in people's minds. Can we just stop the circus? Stop the madness? You know? I think that's what's happening. All right, Peter Cunningham, thank you so much. We're out of time. And uh, before all said and done, I may try to figure out how to take you up on that offer. That sounds like fun to do a live remote show. Get me out of this attic overlooking the alley from your backyard Got to figure out how we can do that. Uh, yeah. Li- live from PC's backyard. You could play the guitar every now and then. Maybe get, drag your son and your daughter into it. Get them to play. It would be a lot of fun. Uh, yeah, we would, do, we, would do, we would do whatever you want. And, you know, and you can bring along whoever you want. We don't discriminate. You know, wide open to uh, you know, any kind of band just one of ours. And uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah, just a reminder again, we're going to do a vigil for sincere um, black um, He was killed on Saturday and over the one-year-old tomorrow at 1 o'clock, 62nd house, 61st and house. So, trying, to, trying to keep focused on this gun violence issue. Because it's and, so and just so everybody knows, when he says tomorrow, 
Uh, he means July 1st, Wednesday, July 1st. It's a podcast, so folks can be listening to this anytime. Wednesday, July yeah, 1st, yeah. 2020. Uh, you'd be surprised, Peter, how many people listen to podcasts months after they've been dropped. That's one thing I've learned. Yeah, I believe it. Um, anyway, PC, Peter Cunningham, thank you so much. Appreciate it, as always. You take care, all right? All right, see you, man. Everybody.